This episode of BevNet's Taste Radio is powered by Cognizin. Find your focus. Cognizin, an industry-leading nootropic for work, exercise, gaming, or every day. Cognizin is the gold standard for focus, mental energy, and comprehensive brain health in your functional beverage. Give your customers the best ingredient for brain health with Cognizin. Learn more at Cognizin.com. Hey folks, I'm Ray Latif, and you're listening to the top podcast for the food and beverage industry, Taste Radio. This is a special edition of the podcast, which highlights interviews with six founders, creators, and innovators who joined us on the show during the second half of 2022. Just a reminder to our listeners, if you like what you hear on Taste Radio, please share the podcast with friends and colleagues. And of course, we would love it if you could review us on the Apple Podcasts app or your listening platform of choice. Let's kick things off with Allison Kane, the founder and CEO of fast-growing refrigerated sauce brand Haven's Kitchen. In this clip, Poulterman episode published on July 12th, Allison spoke about how she created an office environment in which her team wanted to return to an IRL work setting why the brand's innovative package design is both an asset and a limitation, and navigating the challenge of uneven retail pricing. I've been here all week in New York City and speaking with folks that I've been interacting with. A lot of them have talked about how their teams are now all working remotely. Mm -hmm. And there's no real urgency to get back into the office. But again, walking in here, I felt like there was a liveliness, there's an energy here among you and your coworkers. I was going to call them employees, but I I feel like you'd prefer coworkers. My team. Your team. Yeah. And, you know, you don't get that, obviously, from Zoom calls. No. You don't cook together on Zoom calls. Did you feel that urgency pretty quickly to get the team back in the office as soon as possible? The team wanted to get back in the office there's push and there's pull, right? You know, you can like force something down people's throats or you can make it really appealing and wonderful. And then they want to be a part of it. I'm never going to make people come in if they don't want to. What I do hope to create is an atmosphere and environment where people want to be together and want to be with me. I think whether it's making food or returning to the office, if you make it a should or a have to, you're just naturally going to get resistance. If you make it something that people are excited about, you're going to get more buy-in and buy-in is everything. The pouch really is an amazing package. You know, when I think when I first saw Haven's Kitchen, I was like, this is brilliant. How come more people aren't doing this? And for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned, I mean, it's a clear pouch. You can fit a bunch of them in your refrigerator without a lot of headache. But on the retail front, were there a lot of questions about, well, how does this fit on shelf? You know, does a stand-up pouch, is it going to fall down a lot? I mean, I guess, how did you work that out with your retailers? I mean, it happened at the fancy food show. John Lawson, who was, you know, the Northeast grocery buyer, came over and he was like... For Whole Foods. Yeah, for Whole Foods. He was like, these are great, love them. And then he took his, you know, pointer finger and just touched the standing pouch and it like, boop like a little domino just like tipped right over. And he's like, what are you going to do about that? 
And that's when I learned about shelf-ready corrugate and, you know, the rip-off top. And that actually gives you an opportunity to do some branding on the box and took us a while. But yeah, I mean, people still have questions and not every, you know, not every retail shelf has the height for the corrugate. So they take them out of our things and then they're, you know, just sort of, you're hoping that someone doesn't knock down the whole slew of pouches and they're just kind of lying there flat on the shelf. It's challenging. You know, I have five kids and I've always said like their assets are their liabilities and their liabilities are their assets. You as a human, the things that make you great are probably the things that you struggle with, just different side of the same coin. And it's the same with the product. Everything that makes it amazing are the actual things that make it challenging. And that's the fun part, mostly. Sprouts, Whole Foods, Target, one of the challenges of being in all those places is that your price point is different in all those places. Totally, yeah. I mean, I think you told me at Whole Foods, it's five ninety nine. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny. So Whole Foods Mid-Atlantic is five ninety nine. Whole Foods Everywhere Else is six ninety nine, And Whole Foods Northeast is seven ninety nine. And that's partially because of price matching in Mid-Atlantic. And it's partially because of like the DSD, sort of that like different distributor network in the Northeast. Yeah, I mean, we... We can control what we can control. We can control our price to the distributor. Sometimes we can do an EDLP with a retailer, but for the most part, Target, for example, they have a whole group of people in a room somewhere doing pricing that has nothing to do with the brand or even our buyer. So we are $6.99 in a lot of places. And unfortunately, we're like $8.49 in a couple of places. And it works for them. They've figured out the math on their end, you know, dollars per slot versus velocity. It's challenging on the brand, right? Because A, we get these DMs from people who are like, I really wanted to try it, but it's $8. Who do, you know, who do you think you are? There's only so much we can be like, you know, call Target. So we we send things and we, we try to make nice, but it's hard. Yeah. And of course your velocity is going to take a hit, but there are some things that you can control in this business and most of it you can't. You know, if Target's charging eight fifty or eight ninety nine for a pouch and you want the price point to be closer to six dollars, why be in Target? I love this question because I think that it pertains to basically everything, right? Every channel, whether it's a marketing channel or a sales channel, an event, who you're pitching, everything in almost life, right? There's a reason for it. You have to know what you're going into that channel for. And the success of that depends on what you have established as the goal of it. Target is one of those accounts that is a halo. It's incredible awareness. It has a ton of people who love Target. You know, they're Target people that are just like crazy Target people. I know those people. Yeah. And it's and like it, that in Bed Bath and Beyond. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Trader Joe's too, right? Yeah, like absolutely. we're never going to be in Trader Joe's and they will likely copy us, but I'll sue them. <laughs> just matter of fact. I'm just like ready. Trader Joe's I'm if like you're ready. listening. I'm, I'm like, come at me, TJ or Aldi or whatever. But, you know, for Target, like, you know what you're in there for. You're not in there. You know, you might be in there for a good top line. You might be in there for like really good awareness. You're probably not in there for a great margin. And that's okay. And knowing that ahead of time frees you up because it means, okay, I know what my goal is for this channel. So I know 
where my boundaries are for this channel and what I'm willing to do for it. You know, there are other channels that are much more margin accretive. And when they start imposing things, that's when you're like, "Mm, this is not that channel. That's over here. And just knowing what the goal is for each thing. And I would say the same thing with a partnership, but, you know, anything, any marketing channel, you know, some of them are for awareness. Some of them are for repeat. Some of them are for testing to see, does this work with this particular group of people? And every time you launch something new, knowing what the kind of, what you're trying to get out of it is just very helpful because it keeps you from making decisions that are reactive. You know, every decision, I mean, I try to make responsive decisions, but not reactive because you're, you end up being just the tail being wagged by the dog and there's just tons of dogs and you're just always the tail. There's a lot of dogs in New York City. So many dogs. There you go. Yeah. Full circle here. It goes all back to the dog. Yes. I want to talk about margin for a second because it's all I hear about from investors. Now. I talked to, wait, yeah. Yeah. Well, profitability is coming up in a lot of those conversations Uh now. Five years ago, don't worry about being profitable. It's fine. It'll come with scale. Kind of a setup. It very much was. But every investor I talked to, they're like, entrepreneurs have got to get their margin right. That's the only way. That's the first thing we talk about when we sit down with an entrepreneur, almost. Mm-hmm. How did you learn about what margins you needed to make this a sustainable and ultimately, hopefully, profitable business? I don't know. Are you guys profitable yet? No. No, I wouldn't think so. But, but we have a really good gross margin. And you have a path to profitability. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did you educate yourself about what you needed to do because of those high quality ingredients that you use and the price point that you hope to get? It seems like it would be a little challenging for your brand and your products. Yeah. I mean, I would love to say that I was just really smart. I am privileged to have a romantic partner who is a a private equity investor. (laughs) And one night he said to me, you know, this really isn't worth doing if you can't get your gross margin to 40% or above. And I immediately burst into tears and we got into a pretty big fight And then the next day, I sort of brushed myself off, said thank you for the advice and went and found a co-packer who could make my sauce and invest in the company and give me a break on the toll. So I got lucky that that was who I was sleeping with (laughs) at the moment. (laughs) That's, That's the honest answer, right? I mean, I, you know, it's, I think that since then, obviously, I've become sort of like the margin freak it makes me sound a little old and outdated and a little bit like a killjoy. I don't think so. It, sound, it makes it sound like an intelligent entrepreneur, really. I mean, yeah, but, you know, also sometimes I'm like, there's a lot of killing it and crushing it and loud stuff going on. And I'm here like, you know, what are we, you know, how are we reformulating to like make, you know, and so sometimes I feel a little bit like that. But yeah, I mean, I think number one, I mean, do you want to be continually fundraising? Because it is exhausting. And as confident as a human and as in love with your product as you might be, I don't believe it if people say that it doesn't personally hurt them every time they get a no or I'm not interested or this isn't for us or we don't think it's a fit. So if you want to be on that train and constantly trying to bring in people and convince them that the business is worth it, then have a product that just needs to just be continually fed by other people's money. 
On the other hand, building a food company that is, you know, as you said, high quality ingredients, cold supply chain, HPP, which is expensive, you know, a category disruptor, that's very, very unlikely to be profitable for the first several years. So that balance between that growth and that profitability is where, again, you're trying to like sail the boat so it doesn't tip over, but you move along in the water. And I think we're, we're there and we're getting better and stronger. And, you know, again, I come from a profitable brick and mortar, so I'm not inclined to spend the way I think that some entrepreneurs have been lulled into spending in the last couple of years. And I'm, I'm grateful for that because I think it's going to be a rude awakening. Next up, we have Dan Lawrence and Ryan Hughes, the co-founders of sports nutrition and energy brand Ghost. In a clip pulled from an episode featured on October 25th, Dan and Ryan spoke about why generating revenue is not at the top of the list of company priorities, why entrepreneurs have to go all in to be successful, why they believe you can't create a lifestyle brand, and why Ghost has never used social media as a marketing tool. We prioritize people, we prioritize products, we prioritize brand you know, all with the goal of making an impact, not making a buck. And I think it's it's amazing. And we're smart enough guys to know if you do those things and you execute well, the dollars are going to be there, the sales are going to be there. But yeah, it's been an amazing ride so far. Dan, uh, you said something interesting that I just want to touch on. You, you said that you'd started other businesses and Ryan mentioned this as well, but they didn't work because you guys weren't all in. What does that mean to go all in on something? I think... There's only really one way to go all in. And I think it's it's fully to invest 100% of your time, your attention, your dollars to an idea. It could be a service, could be a brand, could be a product, could be anything, right? An entrepreneur goes in head first and doesn't lift their head for air until you know there's an opportunity to, whether it's through the business being successful or you know, a monumental moment to step back and appreciate what you've done. But I think the two of us and obviously having full-time gigs prior, you know, we were, we were really starting side hustles, right? It was something that we committed some attention to. And I think a lot of people do this. They, they say, Hey, I'm going to start this business. And they, they give it 50% of their time. Uh, and they say, if that business is successful, I'll leave my gig. Right. It's not surprising that a lot of those people never build a successful business, right? Because you're never giving it the, the attention that it deserves. And, you know, for us, it's been a 24-7 project since the moment we we came up with the idea, long before we even launched, right? So, and that comes with a lot of stress, a lot of, of challenges, and, you know, a lot of moments where you feel like you've lost or going to lose everything. And I think those moments are ultimately what would give you, you know, the feeling today where you're like so proud and, and excited about what you've built. I think it's illogical, if not a little cocky, to think that you're 50% can beat somebody else's 100%. So I think that that was the moment for us of we have to go 100% in, as Ryan said, um, in every which way. You know, again, you know, here, here we are. Ryan, in addition to the word fun, the word that I often hear associated with Ghost is lifestyle. You guys set out to create a lifestyle sports nutrition brand. However, uh, the last time we chatted, you made it clear that you can't create a lifestyle brand. It has to be one from day one. So what does that entail? Because I know a lot of listeners think, oh yeah, I want to start something that's novel, unique, that's associated with a lifestyle, not necessarily associated with a product or commodity. 
So what does that entail? I mean, I think from for day one from us, like it, it entailed everything that we loved and we were passionate about. The kit, you know, from obviously the gym and working out to sneakers and you know travel and music and a lot of these things. And for us, we we did you know kind of inject pieces of all of those things into everything that you see today from Ghost, whether it's in the the products themselves or the creative or the content. The lifestyle brand for us was a collection of everything that we were super passionate about, and it was authentic, right? I think the authenticity piece to that is why. I said, you can't necessarily create a lifestyle brand. It, you have to bleed it, right? And for us from day one, I think Ghost was was a collection of, of everything that I think at first it was what we were passionate about, but what we quickly realized is that a lot of people are passionate about the same things. You realize that through sharing these values, this authentic approach to a category, to a business via social. And you know, I see you guys are so interconnected with partners, your customers, your customers are very, very tied to uh, social in a way that some of the other legacy brands never could be. Is that really where you saw the opening to connect with folks? I mean, is that the is that the path? Is that the medium that you found was most impactful when you launched the brand and as it developed? I mean, something that I think is really important to us, we've never really used social media as a marketing tool. We've used it as a communication and connecting tool. And then that's a really important kind of like nuanced way of way of thinking where really, again, like these are social shareable products and we wanted to build a, a brand and build a community around that brand that, that kind of spoke to that. So, so I think it's just, it's just a different way of, of maybe, maybe thinking and, and look, social media has enabled ghosts and several, you know, all entrepreneurs today to be able to connect with audiences and find like audiences um, in a way that, you know, years ago didn't, didn't really, didn't really exist. And with with that comes kind of this mindset of like we own the company, but we don't own our brand. You know, the, the ownership of the brand exists in the hearts and minds of everybody involved. You know, fans, customers, partners included. And I think rather than running from that, like some people do, we celebrate it. You used a word earlier when we were kind of talking on a similar subject, and we've said it numerous times since. But I think especially now more than ever, people crave connection, and they crave connection in relationships. They crave connection in the products that they buy, the things they consume. And I think social media obviously gives us a medium and a platform to connect with our audience. But the way that we've attacked it has actually created that genuine or authentic connection with that community that makes them feel like you mentioned earlier that they're a part of this. And you know, while Dan and I might have started it, as he just mentioned, Ghost is far bigger than the two of us now. It's a collection of, of everybody, both internally and externally, that's connected and is passionate about the same things that we are. And that's what makes Go special. Social media is a really great tool to connect with, to communicate with your consumers, with your fans. Uh, in many ways, consistency is the key because one post or another is pretty fleeting. You know, someone will look at a, an Instagram post or a reel, 10 seconds later, they'll forget about it. That being said, when you're talking about playing the long game, which I know is something that's really important to you guys, thinking about that from the outset, knowing that this is going to be a grind, knowing that you're going to have to put the work in for a number of years, is something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, it's hard for them to understand, it's hard for them to appreciate. How did you guys, Dan, how did you guys think about playing this long game and preparing for it? It's, it's, it's a great question. I think part of, part of the way we attacked it is there, there's never really been I think a specific goal or a master plan. 
you know, the, the hypothesis that we wanted to test with Ghost from day one is always how big can we take this? Like how big can we build this brand and our products? How far can we go? How far can we reach without ever sacrificing for even a second on any of that initial vision and the kind of ideals that we started this? You know, this the commitment to authenticity, the commitment to transparency, community that connected, um, you know, connecting people, how, how far can we go? You know, you asked a question earlier about ROI, how far can we go before, before there's inherent pressure to focus on ROI instead of brand building or community building? You know, and look, I, I think, you know, for us, that's, that's still a journey that we're on. And, and I don't really know how, how, how high is high. And I think that that's one way we've kind of focused on it. If you start a business with a specific I want to exit at this time. I want to exit at this dollar. It's just a much different experience and one that I don't know that Ryan and I can relate to. In the easiest way possible, like we're super passionate about what we're doing. So for us, the long game was the only option. Like we're, we're in no rush to not be doing exactly what we're doing right now. And I think in, in today's you know entrepreneurial climate, I would challenge a lot of entrepreneurs on whether or not they are that passionate about what it is they're building, regardless of what it is. It's a product, a brand, service, whatever. If you're truly passionate about it, the thought of exiting it is the scariest thing you've ever talked about. Hey folks, stay tuned till the end of this episode for a bonus interview with industry veteran David Sandler, who shares an insider's perspective on one of the most in-demand functional ingredients of 2024. Let's keep it going with Annalena Kamenetsky, the founder and CEO of growth stage venture capital firm, Touch Capital. In this clip from our episode published on October 4th, Annalena discussed the value of entrepreneurs with prior industry experience, why an A idea doesn't work with a C team, how she evaluates innovative brands and their scaling potential, and the best ways to implement investor feedback and input. I want to ask our audience here, uh, for entrepreneurs in the room, can you please raise your hand if you had prior experience in CPG before you launched your company? I see three hands for listeners. That's not a lot. No. <laughs> do you put any emphasis, do you put any value or at least additional value on prior experience in CPG you know, when you're considering investment in a brand, in a founder? Let's put it this way. It doesn't necessarily need to be with the founder. I do look for experience in the team, but it doesn't have to be the founder. And that goes to the heart of what I think anyway is the case that great founders need to have the confidence to hire people who are at least as good as they are. Uh, I want to come back to that point in a second, but I'm just looking across the room and I see so many amazing brands. And thank you all to folks who brought samples and I see a lot of innovation on these tables. And innovation is an interesting concept. It's an interesting thing to talk about. Just because your product has something different, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be successful. That's me talking, but how do you evaluate innovation? It's very right what you say, and I think that's something that I would always tell founders, make sure that before you kind of put everything in and give it your best, that it's really a product that's enough 
differentiated to really make a difference that's sufficient for a consumer to pick your product versus somebody else's and also sufficiently different for distribution channels to really say, okay, we are we're taking a bet on this one because it really is a completely new and beneficial approach to an existing category. And I think much of the innovation, especially in beverage, doesn't necessarily pass that smell test. So what I really look for is A, is the addressable market big enough that this can actually become a really interesting scale brand? Because sometimes brands are just kind of in such a small category that I'm like, at least as an investor, even if it's a blowout success, it's not going to be a very big outcome. Secondly, I think in CBG in particular, relatively early on, you can see if you get with your product to a margin structure that's going to long-term support a profitable business. Yeah, and Jim mentioned it earlier that, you know, that's maybe a viewpoint that for some investors comes new to the, to the table, so to say, over the last year and a half. You know, I, I would say I've always been more old-fashioned in that sense and thought, you know, if you have to pay customers to buy your product, that's not something that's going to be long-term a viable business. And so I think in, in consumer where even with scale, you're only going to get so much more of scale benefits because different from tech, you still have to actually produce your product and distribute it. I mean, these costs don't go away. They may get a little bit lower with scale, but they don't go away. So I think you can relatively early on see if this is a business that has legs or not. Can you do that when you're walking through the aisles of Whole Foods? I wish. Uh, <laughs> no, <clears throat> no, I can't. I mean, I think what the walk through in a Whole Foods aisle can better achieve is to see the gaps. And we just invested in a company, an instant ramen business, better for you. And, you know, when you walk through that aisle, you can see that the companies that have been in there haven't done anything innovative for the last 40 years. Yeah. And the contents, the, the nutritional value is awful. And so there, I think you can easily see the gap. Yeah. And then you can look for who is filling that gap and invest in it. But I think going through the aisles and saying this is a product that's going to definitely break through. Again, I wish I could do it, but uh, that's a hard one. When we chatted prior to uh, our conversation right now, um, you told me something interesting about innovation in team, the dynamics between innovation and team. And I, I'm going I'm to have to read it here. You said that an A idea, that is like a great idea, doesn't work with a C team, as in an average team. But a B idea can work with an A team. Can you elaborate? Yeah. I mean, I think a great team can really pull things off and make ideas work that aren't necessarily at first sight fantastic. But the best idea, if you don't have the right team, it's just not going to work. So for me, going back to also what Jordan and, and Jim and Jake said earlier, really investing in your culture and in your people is, is really core. And it also goes back to what I just said. I think great leadership for me is really also to have the confidence to, to hire fantastic people. And I think that's where many companies fall short, that, you know, there's a lack of confidence in the leadership team and they hire people that, you know, don't get dangerous, so to say, because they're not as good. And I think you should always try to hire people that are better than you. If you met my partner, Grace, you know what I'm talking about. So. <laughs> that's a very nice thing to say. You know, I think when people are looking for investment, they're also looking for value-added investment. They're looking for people who have the kind of operational expertise that you have. That being said, they don't necessarily, even from what I've heard from entrepreneurs, they don't necessarily want 
investors to be, I'm going to use the word meddling, so to speak, in the day-to-day operations. But when you have that experience, when you have that insight that you want to share with the portfolio companies, how do you incorporate that experience when you are offering advice, when you are evaluating their progress? Yeah, I mean, first of all, to say, having been on the receiving end of this as an operator as well, I think I have never met an investor who didn't think that they evaluated. So, you know, that's, that's kind of as a starter. I think personally that that value added always has to be a pull. If you have to push your opinion and advice on somebody, that to me means this is not, a, this is not gonna work. Yeah, because either you invest in somebody who really actually values input, or you don't, or you don't have anything valuable to say, and then there's also no point in saying it. And I think within our portfolio companies, there are companies that I'm involved with a lot, and then there are others where I'm not involved with a lot. And they, you know, only come when something is like totally on fire and a big crisis. And then, of course, I sometimes say, well, you know, maybe you should have come a little bit earlier because we could have avoided that pretty easily. And now it's more difficult to solve it than earlier. But I'm not a believer in kind of calling up people constantly and, and offering advice that's not wanted. Every investor thinks they add value or they have a value-added aspect to what they're doing. Every entrepreneur, I hope, thinks that they can pull off their vision, thinks that they can do what they're setting out to do. But how do you know that they can pull it off? You know, you obviously never know exactly. But I think there are, there are pretty good data points around uh, if people can pull something off or not. I mean, one is, you know, how committed are they actually to their business? I mean, you heard the three of, uh, uh, of the Super Coffee team here earlier that in April they went out to Publix and stocked the shelves. I mean, that's a commitment, I don't know, like, but you need that sort of commitment to your brand to really just do what it takes. So I think that's something you can see relatively quickly if people are really into it and really want to build something or if they just think, oh, this is an easy way to make money, which it clearly isn't, but I think there's this misperception sometimes. I think what you can also see relatively quickly is how thoughtful people actually go about building their business and building their teams and building their systems and really thinking about how they do this. And there are huge ranges huge. I mean, I've, I saw businesses that are literally in the exact same product that raised $17 million to come to $700,000 of sales. And the same business with the same product raised less than a million to come to $2 million of sales. And that just kind of shows you how capital efficient people are, how they really kind of think about what's the right expense and the right investment at what stage of the business. And I think these are things that you can see relatively early. For us, we invest in Series A and up. So I think a lot of kind of the, you know, a lot of the things have already been weeded out until then. But again, I think there, there are definitely some points that you can identify pretty early. Next, we have Ibrahim Basir, the founder and CEO of A Dozen Cousins, a brand of side dishes and sauces inspired by traditional Creole, Caribbean, and Latino recipes. In this clip, pulls from an episode published on June 28th, Ibrahim discussed how the company's initial focus has evolved, working with co-manufacturing partners to ensure quality standards, and why keeping a foot in the familiar is a key tenant of its innovation strategy. Accessibility 
is an important part of any brand that is trying to scale. And I think at the outset, were you thinking about accessibility as much as you were about the mission of representation and reaching Black and Latino communities? Whenever you have a brand that goes out into the world, that those early days are like there's a it's a formative process, right? So I had the I had this kind of pristine image of a dozen cousins, and then it has to be created and brought into the world. And I would say, you know, in the early days, some of the most formative conversations we had around the brand was like, who is your consumer target? How do you actually reach them? What does the product need to look like? in order to be useful to them, right? And so, you know, when I first started, I was very laser focused on Black and Latino consumers, people who grew up eating these foods, people who are from the same community as myself, and they still remain kind of the heart and soul of the brand. What I'll say is one of the things we realized is like we needed to have a go-to-market strategy that actually reached those consumers. And we also needed to recognize that the market was much bigger than them, right? Um, and so for us, that came, you know, came to life by way of like, okay, what's our channel strategy, right? We were in Walmart, within our second year of launching. We were in Costco in our second year of launching. So trying to get into retailers that enabled better price points, that enabled accessibility for the communities that we really cared about. And then on the flip side, we also kind of opened up our mind a little bit to say like, okay, your typical Whole Foods shopper, right, might not necessarily be from these communities, but they're still going to appreciate the flavor, the convenience. And so the brand, I think, has become a lot more open and inclusive over the years. So we still have this, you know, core consumer that, grew up with our foods and that, you know, like I said, it's kind of the heart and soul of the brand. And then we also have this much broader consumer base that, you know, loves the product for, for many other reasons. When did you realize you were starting to get traction with mainstream consumers and how did it impact the business strategy? One of the big touchstone moments for us was launching nationally at Whole Foods that happened about six months into market, right? I was like June of 2019. Um, and that was just a big moment for the brand because you're now in, you know, most of the states in the country, Hundreds of thousands of people are seeing the product, buying the product every week. That for us was just a signal that, okay, obviously there's, this is working, right? There's people who care beyond it. We started to get that feedback in terms of comments on social media, seeing how people were cooking the food, you know, seeing people post food imagery online. So you started to see in a really visceral way, like, okay, these are the people who are, who the product is resonating with. And like I said, I think the tweaks to our business strategy at that time were pretty subtle. It was just like, Okay, how do we think about marketing? How do we think about our brand voice tone while basically just straddling that line, right? Being true to the communities that our foods and flavors come from, which is still always a priority for us, but making sure that we were positioning ourselves and our product in a way that other people felt welcome. And it wasn't like, you know, we don't care about you or we don't want you here, right? It was more like, hey, you can come, you know, grab a seat, you know, you can, you can take part as well. I want to talk about your, your beans because the beans are the flagship products. The process, though, let's talk about that process of how you get to that final product, because it's not inexpensive and it's it's something that has to be right. How do you get your manufacturers, how do you get your co-packers to make a high quality product right every single time? It's a great question. I think, you know, first and foremost, it starts with a really clear gold standard of what you want the product to be. Right. And so before I get into the co-packer question, it's just like, you know, we spend a lot of time on just the question of. What should the bean texture be like? What should this product look like when you open up the pouch? What should the pouch smell like, right? Like we take a full kind of 360, very multi-sensorial approach to product development and trying to understand, okay, what is the full experience we want someone to have both as they're preparing, eating, and just talking about the product afterwards, right? You know, once you align on that, then it's just a question of like iteration and discipline, you know, like, okay. Sample one comes back. It's not quite where we want it. You have to be willing to push. I think sometimes it's easy, 
particularly working with when you're working with any party, right? Of like they have their vested interest, which might be, hey, let's make this as easy as possible, as quickly as possible. You have a different interest, right? Which is how do I make the best product possible? And I think you have to be willing to kind of work that tension a little bit. So in our case, it took, you know, I won't share a number, but many, many rounds of iteration to get the products to where they are right now. And I think we have, you know, I, I'm, humbly, I think we have the best product in our segment, right? In terms of the texture, the appearance, the taste. So that would be the first thing. And then, you know, beyond that, it's just, like I said, having good systems in place to, you know, we taste every batch of product that comes off the line. You know what I mean? Like literally. And so that allows us, again, to have just really high quality control. That's such a great idea and something that um, I think a lot of entrepreneurs should ask of their co-packers is to taste the product every single time before it goes out. Because that one time that it doesn't taste great is that one time that you lose a customer or potentially lose a customer. When you are presenting to buyers and when you didn't you know, present to buyers, when you were talking about the potential for a premium bean set, what really moved the needle for them? What really got them excited about this idea and your brand in particular? you know, we didn't have a ton of data, right? Like it wasn't like, obviously that very first buyer, we had no data, right? Where it was like, we weren't in physical retail at all. And so, you know, some of it is just telling the story and and painting a picture for the future, right? And so I think about our first kind of 12 months of selling, uh, I can see the slide in my head right now. Like there wasn't a data point on there. It was just, you know, it was a very qualitative statement about how our product was different than what was on the shelf, right? So it was like, Dry beans take two hours. Our product takes 60 seconds, right? Canned beans require additional ingredients. Ours do not. Refried beans are using lard and all kinds of, you know, processed ingredients. We're using avocado oil and real vegetables, right? And so, like, that was it, right? It was just, we're going to tell you a story about why we think this product is different than what's on the shelf. And I think that's, you know, that would be my number one piece of advice, you know, on that topic of how do you break through with buyers? You have to be willing to embrace and, and have a story around wh- why you're different and better. I think sometimes people are very obsessed with like, I'm going to steal a slice of this other brand's thing just because like, okay, our marketing might be better or our packaging is nicer. And that's cool. But like, really, you want some nuts and bolts points of difference that you can hang your hat on. And I think that that has made us successful. You know, in terms of your second question around like building buyer relationships, in my experience, it has come with time, right? So the, the buyers that we have the best relationship with, the people who took an early bet on the brand, it's done well in their stores. We've come back and supported them. We've shown gratitude for the, the early bet they took on our brand. And we've been able to kind of build like that over time, right? Like any other relationship, good communication is key, right? Like we're not leaving people in the dark if, you know, are, are jerking people around or saying one, you know, making a deal and then going back when you think you have a little bit of leverage, right? Like, and this is true of any business relationship. I think it's a lot of the same building blocks, right? Is there, is there trust? Is there honesty? Is there good communication? You use the word bet a couple of times. Is there a way to mitigate the risk for that buyer in that they shouldn't be thinking about taking your brand on as a bet? I mean, the most obvious thing is just thinking about your footprint and how you launch, right? And we've taken a different approach with different retailers, right? In some cases, we've launched very small and, you know, small footprint. We'll test it out and kind of scale with time. And then there's been other times where we felt like, look, we believe, right? And like, we want to, we want to go bigger than that. And so I think, you know, that's the number one risk mitigation factor from my perspective of like, if you're dealing with a retail launch, it's thinking through how many stores do you want to be in? How much money do you want to put behind it to ensure that it's successful? And then you kind of triangulate on the right plan with that buyer. So do you tell the buyer, look, if the buyer offers you a hundred stores and you're like, I can't do a hundred stores, but I can do 20. 
I mean, is that a conversation you've had in the past? I've had that. I've had conversations where we've asked down and I've had conversations where we've asked up, right? Because there's also a risk in going too small or not having enough data or having a really long time between resets, right? And so um, it's not always the case that you want to that you want to go small, but I have been in that situation where, you know, a buyer wanted to do a little more than we were comfortable with at the time or that we, you know, we wanted to ease our way into it. And then there's been times where it's been the reverse. When you're thinking about innovation and when you're thinking about extending the brand and becoming more of that platform brand that a dozen cousins has evolved into, how do you continue to find things that people are familiar with while being as innovative as you want to be? Because again, going back to retail buyers, retail buyers in a lot of cases are looking for things that are a little bit more dynamic, are different, are exciting to put on shelves so that their customers can be like, oh, wow, you know, this retailer carries interesting, unique, different products. But how do you stay familiar while being innovative? How do you do both at the same time? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a spectrum, first of all, and every brand doesn't need to play at the same spot on it, right? Like, I think there's products that I enjoy that are pretty, you know, pretty left field in terms of just they're very different, right? Um, they're very different than what's out today, and some of them work, right? And And then you have brands that are super traditional, right? Where it's like, I don't think this is innovative at all, right? And like, you know, we want to be kind of in the middle of the spectrum. At the end of the day, our brand is rooted in tradition, is rooted in foods that have been around for hundreds of years. And so we're automatically starting with a little bit of an anchor point around, look, if we're going to deliver Cuban black beans, it needs to feel like a Cuban black bean, right? And we can play with the oils that we use or the packaging format, but we want that core product experience to be familiar to what people would have experienced. And so you know, what we do is we, we look at categories, we look at products and we just, we, we kind of poke and prod and we're, you know, we're, we're, we're modern consumers ourselves as, as employees of the business. Uh, we're consuming food content all the time. We're looking to see what's interesting and new in terms of ingredients or cooking methods or formats. Um, and then we try to apply it to the foods and, and the categories that we already love. So I don't know if that answers your question, but like my goal is to be kind of in the middle, right? Like we want to have a really clear anchor point in something that feels timeless and traditional. And then we want to try to upgrade it where we can with ingredients and, and formats. If you work in the food and beverage industry and you're serious about growing your team, make sure to check out the Bevna and Nosh job boards. To get the most bang for your buck, purchase a package and receive a discount. Head to bevna.com or nosh.com and click on job board at the top. We continue with Chitra Agarwal, the founder and CEO of Brooklyn Deli, a brand of Indian-inspired pantry staples crafted for modern kitchens. In this clip, pulled from an episode aired on September 13th, Chitra discussed why she didn't pay herself a salary for the first four years of the business, why the company has no outside investors, how she created favorable contracts with co-manufacturers, and how an omnichannel sales strategy has benefited the company. You didn't pay yourself for a long time, though. The first four years, you didn't pay yourself a salary. Um, how did that work out? And how did you fund the business uh, early on? So at the same time that I started Brooklyn Deli, I also um, had gotten a cookbook deal. And so I had used the advance um, also uh, to help support myself and the business. But I also was working freelance um, in marketing. So um, I, I guess... You know, for me, I just wanted to be able to get the business on the ground to show that it was viable um, before I thought about even 
you know, getting outside funding in a sense. I wanted to show that this business could stand on its own. Um, and uh, we, it, it was a long four years. I mean, it, it's like um, having to balance um, figuring out how to even make this product, put it on the shelf and, and everything that goes along with it. Um, but also, writing a cookbook and um, all of managing a freelance um, job, but uh, we we made it through. And I definitely, I mean, I, I say this, it's like, <laughs> I basically ate a lot of beads and lentils during that time period. And I did not buy clothes for those whole four, like new clothes for the four years, but I didn't care because I loved what I was doing. Um, and it's weird because this mental shift happened, I felt like when I started Brooklyn Deli, because I was working a regular day job where, um, you know, I would look forward to the weekends and, you know, going shopping and, and doing all these things that were very much, um, you know, uh, material, <laughs> materially focused. And a lot of that stuff kind of didn't interest me as much when I found what I was doing at Brooklyn Deli. Still no outside investors, right? No outside investors, no. <laughs> that is amazing. How have you managed the growth that you've had over the past eight years with no outside funding? Well, I think it has a lot to do with planning. So um, we're definitely still a small batch company in that I'm not doing huge runs because we can't really support that from a financial uh, point of view. So um, there, there's definitely a lot of um, timing uh, that that we're aware of as far as cash flow goes. And, um, you know, it's a lot more work to do. But at the end of the day, you know, I own it all. And um, I am kind of dictating how fast this business grows. And the other piece, about retailers too, you know, we have, um, you know, made a conscious effort to not go too wide, but to kind of be very specific about the retailers that we are targeting, and then to really drill down uh, once we get into those retailers to help support the business instead of kind of going wide. Because when you go wide in grocery, there's a lot of other expenses that go with it, which is, you know, there's free fills and then there's added promotions. So I think for us, we've been concentrating on the retailers we're in um, and making sure we win there. What's been the impact of? being this sort of omnichannel brand and that you do have, you know, a blue apron deal, you do have traditional retail with Whole Foods. I think you guys do food service as well. I mean, has that helped with sort of maintaining this consistent cash flow and revenue and, and hopefully profitability? Yeah, no, it's definitely, I think that the um, diversification of our revenue streams has um, very much helped us because, I mean, depending, so like for Blue Apron, it's like, we get that money cash to hand. I know that I'm not going to get any more, any chargebacks or there's no promotions that happen there, um, as well as uh, the, the business that we have online. So all of our direct-to-consumer sales, that's all cash um, in our pocket. Um, so, you know, all of these channels are the different um, ways that we think about about um, kind of going uh, about like our sales strategy uh, definitely has has helped us um, as far as cash flow goes. Early on, Brooklyn Daily, I think you told me that it was all self production for some time, which I'm sure <laughs> was a lot of fun. But you know, managing your relationships with co-packers is also you know a key part of the puzzle here. And if you have a good relationship 
Um, it can be the most important part of your business. How have you navigated uh, co-manufacturing uh, and working with co-packers? Yeah, so yeah, so I did. I I handpacked um, Brooklyn Deli for the first four years of our business, and um, it was not until we scaled up and got the Whole Foods and Blue Apron opportunities that we found a co-packer. And I think that for me, and I'm I'm different from I'm sure a lot of other um, uh, food business owners, but. I felt like my strengths um, lie in the recipe development um, and other areas, but not really in the running of a factory in a sense. So, um, but where we kind of have a hybrid model here is that we actually still source all of our ingredients. Um, and I think that that piece is also because I'm a little bit of a control freak, but um, Brooklyn Deli has always been focused on flavor. So if I have a co-manufacturer, I need to have control over the ingredients that are going into our products. And I don't think a lot of people realize this, but a lot of co-manufacturers will not allow um, their customers to source ingredients. Um, and so for us, that's a key differentiator and something that we had to negotiate with the, the co-manufacturers that we use. How do you negotiate something like that? Um, typically, co-mans have the upper hand uh, when it comes to contracts. So, I mean, how do you get what you want out of that deal? I think that we... Um, I mean, we definitely went through a lot of, uh, you know, research when it came to the co-packers and because we had that specific need, um, we were able to find um, a co-packer that was aligned with us. Um, and I think also that we had POs in our hand at the time. So, you know, it was kind of like, you know, we have this business, we can give it to you, um, but these are kind of um, the non-negotiables for us. So when you have leverage, that's the best way to go to a co-packer? I would say so. I, I really, I'm a risk-averse person, so I definitely was waiting for a PO in order to hit the go button on the co-manufacturer. I, I come from, I feel like, you know, the, we come from a food artisan background in a sense, right? Because I was hand making it and, you know, I'm from this Brooklyn food community um, that uh, I feel like that's what I knew, really. And so for me, going to a co-manufacturer was kind of like this huge step. And being able to own that piece of sourcing um, made it um, a lot easier for me to make that step, though. Finally, we hear from Maxime Pouvro, the founder of premium pudding brand Petit Po. In the following clip, pulls from an episode published on September 27th, Maxime explained why he has stressed frugality and cautious spending since the beginning and explained how the hire of an experienced operations executive and planning strategy has helped the company scale production and achieve profitability. How many people have invested based on the product itself, the quality of the product? I would say zero. Based on 100% of the product, I, I don't think there is any. I figured that was going to be the answer because I think there's a lot of people who just believe their pro if their product is so great, you know, everyone's going to want a, a piece of it. But that's not the case. It's about it's the, the team. business. Well, it's about business at the Absolutely. end of the day. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the people that are going to actually do the plan. 
as you're presenting it to the investors. You know, like most investors, when you show them a plan, they they don't really believe in that plan, but they believe in the team to really actually do the plan as best as possible. Because, you know, you, it's really hard to predict a three-year plan. But if you have a team behind it that has a strong track record and that is driven to do the right thing, I think that's what's going to help. I spoke to an investor once and he said that uh, when you speak to an entrepreneur and they tell you they're going to do a thing and then they actually do that thing, that's how you know they're ready for investment. Yes. Because they actually walk the walk. Exactly. And, and I am proud to say that throughout the years, uh, we always met our budget numbers. Except for this year, it's a hard year. <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer. <laughs> Disclaimer. But up until 2021, we've always done what we were, we were going to do. I'm proud of that. And you always had a path to profitability, which somehow in 2022 was really important. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and I want to talk to you about this because um, I think you're one of the few founders that I've spoken with that has always been laser focused. Look, profitability has to be a very, very important part of anything that we're considering. Yeah. Again, I, I'm sure I've mentioned this in the podcast. This is going to sound like a stupid question. Why were you so interested in being a profitable company? <laughs> I don't, I mean, I think it's cultural as well. In, in my upbringing, the idea that you can just burn money throughout the years is not something that I'm comfortable with. And so I've always focused on gross margin. I've, I've always, I didn't want to just like focus on growth at the expense of the gross margin. I've always made sure that we're pricing the product with the right price structure in order to break even and, if possible, make money. It's definitely in, um, in the essence of the company to watch every dimes and to be really careful on how you spend the money. And so, for example, when investing in marketing, we really like watch all the KPIs to make sure that what we're investing in is going to actually give us a return. And so always focusing on, on that and making sure that whatever you spend has an impact and you're not just spending money for the sake of spending money. And so just, it's like part of the, the DNA of Petit Beau to be careful um, on how you, you, you spend your budget. And I think that really reflects to be able to, for us to turn a profit, even though we're still an early stage company. It can be hard to measure return on investment when you are spending money on marketing. Um, what's your process? Yeah, so what's important is that we, when we test in marketing, we do at a small scale to make sure that we see the results right away. And if we see a, a good results, then we invest more heavily into it, depending on the platforms. Can you share an example? So for example, if you're going to spend some, some ads on, on Google or on, on Amazon, so you do it on a small level and see, okay, are we getting the ROIs on this? And, and if so, then yes, you can invest more heavily. When it comes to the folks that you hire to help you get to where you are, you have to pay them well, but at the same time, you've got to be frugal because you are watching every dime. Yes. Talk about that dynamic. Uh, that's, um, that's a tricky part, I have to say. We're, you know, it's hard to, especially we're in the Bay Area, so paying market level in the Bay Area is, I mean, when you have Google and Tesla competing with the marketplace, it's, it's difficult. But I think what we have to offer at Petit Pro is the authenticity and also every employees uh, that join us get stock options. And I think that's how you're able to compensate for not being able to, to pay what is market in the Bay Area. 
And believe in the in the mission, believe in the Absolutely. vision. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, it's, you know, what we do is, is very authentic and, and people can feel that. And, and we try to have this fun and, and welcoming environment where you work hard, but you have a good time. Uh, and we have a good culture at the company. And that really reflects on, on why people want to stay with us. You know. Some of the most important roles that you've hired for have been in operations. And I was speaking with someone today uh, who mentioned that, you know, hiring an operations director early on may not be the best idea. Um, and I'm thinking, I don't know if that's such a great advice. You know, I think operations, given its importance in scaling, is really critical to the growth strategy for any brand. There's pros and cons for sure, but in your case, it really helped out a lot. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, you know, we are a manufacturer, so it's important that the operations are taken care of. It's a little bit, there's an added layer of complexity. But from from day one, having someone in operation that can also manage the finances at the beginning was key to the success of Petipo. And then in 2019, we actually hired Eric Lalar. He, uh, as a CEO, who now is our CEO since a few months ago, he comes from uh, a bigger corporation and he has this big co-experience. Uh, and that really was helpful to the success of Petipo. And he really flipped the business around the past couple of years. But I think what's important is that when you hire people that have this big co-experience, that they also understand how it works in a startup and that they're willing to roll up their sleeve. So every uh, C-level executive that we have at Petipo, even if they have big core experience, they, they're willing to roll up the sleeve and get the job done. They understand that you don't have this huge team to do the job for you. And so it's been great to see the team grow and, and have this, this type of, of personalities that are willing to, to do that as well. It's surprising to hear, though, that um, finding big company expertise or finding big company experience has been beneficial to an entrepreneurial brand. And I think, you know, it's a fair assumption that there's a big um, gap in between, you know, what they and how they operate and say like a big company like General Mills versus a company like Petipa. You know, how did you recruit for that position of COO? And was that an issue or did you think that was going to be an issue early on? I knew I needed some help at this point in 2019. I was, we just moved to this big manufacturing plant and I was a little bit over my head to be fully transparent. And um, I didn't like go through a full recruitment uh, process. I actually met Eric at Expo West uh, and then he came to the booth and then we started talking and, and it just kind of happened naturally. And that was like the best decision I've made for sure. He just came to your booth to try your product yeah. and started talking? Totally. And, uh, and then maybe a year later, he was hired. <laughs> so you didn't know at the time that you were going to hire a CEO. It was just sort of happenstance. Exactly. He, you know, he, we started talking and then he looked at the business and then he said, Max, you've got a, a fantastic business and uh, I'd love to, to join you. And, and it's just, we started to, we kept chatting and he almost put like a little business plan on the back of the napkin and was like, here, this is what we should be doing. And, and then he joined us. Yeah. That brings us to the end of this episode of Taste Radio. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to our guests, Allison Kane, Dan Lawrence, Ryan Hughes, Annalena Kamineski, Ibrahim Basir, Chitra Agrawal, and Maxime Puvro. Our audio engineer for Taste Radio is Joe Cratchy. Our technical director is Joshua Pratt. And our video editor is Ryan Glang. As always, for questions, comments, ideas for future podcasts, please send us an email to ask at tasteradio.com. On behalf of the entire Taste Radio team, 
Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Hey folks, it's Ray with Taste Radio. Right now, I'm honored to be sitting down with David Sandler, an industry consultant working with Kiwahako. David, great to see you. Hey, great to see you guys. David, you've been in this business, the beverage business, for over 20 years. You've been working on functional beverages for quite some time as well. And I'd love to hear from you about that term, because it's an often used term in industry. But what is a functional beverage? As far as, you know, its category, a lot of things fit in it. And mostly it has to do with sort of the overall way it can benefit the human body to some effect that you wouldn't normally derive regularly without some nutritional support. But more so, it seems to be used in the category of like mood, relaxation, or some other type of performance benefit that you might get, say, to improve athletic ability or fitness or health aspects. So we're seeing a lot now of products coming out that fit that mold where you're talking about more mood, relaxation, even hydration, and then having energy for performance or for health. There are a lot of benefits that can be described as functional, but within this umbrella of functional beverages, could you talk about the growth of the category and where it's going in 2024 and beyond? Well, it seems like the growth is uh, never ending. And it seems like single serve RTDs are still on the rise. Energy drinks are still plowing through. They seem to be continually increasing. Now what we're seeing, though, is an attempt to try to add some other additional benefits to energy drinks including hydration and, you know, focus, mood, and just better overall feeling. And we're starting to see other health benefits being added to some of these drinks as well. Let's talk about one functional ingredient in particular, that's Cognizant, which is an ingredient that I have a lot of love and respect for. But talk about Cognizant and what makes it a leading nootropic. Well, one, you come with uh, years and years of experience from the makers at Kiwahako. They just have such great processes and really stellar research and very solid scrutiny behind their ingredients that they do work with and promote. And so from there, you know you're going to get something that's that's really, you know, first class. We talk a lot about having better focus in today's workplace or today's environment where there's so many factors that are going on, this ingredient seems to really shine. Its data shows unparalleled performance. And uh, for myself as a user and a formulator, it's finding its place in many of the drinks that I am working on where I'm trying to enhance focus, enhance mood, and improve cognition over uh, longer-term use. Is this an ingredient that's becoming more in demand among today's consumers, among modern consumers, and why? Well, I think one, we're we're starting to see it more in products that are out there. So consumers are starting to understand a little bit more about it. But also what we're finding is, is that while lots of groups are out there promoting these ingredients that enhance mood or focus or concentration or cognition and so forth, 
Many of them are wrapped around dosages that are not able to be achieved for, you know, many of the functional mushrooms, for example, require a much larger dose than people are using in the dosing. So they're not seeing the benefit that they would derive, whereas when you get a cognizant-based product, one, there's the requirement to have a dose that matches their research, and thus you're actually getting that feeling. You're getting that function coming out of it. And that's why I think we're starting to see people switching to it and adding it to their products. I'm curious, are there any other natural ingredients that complement Cognizant in a beverage formulation? It can go in a number of different ways. You can put it into your standard pre-workouts to improve the overall function of a pre-workout where you've got your energy, maybe you've got your blood flow, you've got your pump that you're looking for, and then you complement it with a, you know, the focus factor, that concentration that helps you zero in and have a much better workout. But we're also seeing where I would complement it with things like some of those other functional so-called ingredients like mushrooms and a few other ingredients out there where it works so well. The wonderful thing about Cognizant is it works in every format, right? From capsules to powders to liquids. Its taste is just so easy to work with. It's incredibly soluble. It's just a very, very easy ingredient to work with. Easy to work with and easy to learn more about by going to Cognizant.com, C-O-G-N-I-Z-I-N.com. David, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Thanks for all the information and I look forward to catching up again soon. It's an absolute pleasure. And again, thank you for having me.